To begin this morning, I want to ask you a question, and you don't have to answer out loud. Just answer this to yourself, okay? Do you agree with this statement? According to justice, crime deserves punishment. According to justice, crime deserves punishment. Do you agree with that? Does does crime deserve punishment? Do, Do wrongs require punishment to be made right? Should the punishment fit the crime? Does justice demand this? Should criminals get their just desserts? Some say no. They do not agree. They argue that the the purpose of our legal system is not to punish criminals, but to rehabilitate them, to reintegrate them into society as productive and contributing members of society. Many many argue that punishing criminals is, is simply vengeful, abusive, unethical, and unproductive. It does not better society or help the parties involved. We need to be about reconciliation, rehabilitation, and restoration. Believe it or not, this discussion is important today. It's not reserved for for those law students sitting in a classroom, but is an important question for us to wrestle with today because it influences the way we think about God and the message of Christianity. According to Zephaniah, the ultimate judge, the greatest dispenser of justice is not a parent or a teacher, or a principal, not a police officer, or federal marshal, or Supreme Court judge, but it is God Himself. We're told throughout His Word, and especially in the book of Zephaniah, that He has reserved a day when He is coming to judge the whole world. Is the purpose of his coming judgment vengeful and destructive or rehabilitative and restorative? Well, we're going to discuss that today. And as you consider this topic, I want you to ask yourself again this morning, as you think on God's coming judgment, what type of day is that going to be for you? What type of day will that be for you? Is it going to be a day you look forward to? Or a day that you dread. You have your Bibles turned to Zephaniah 2. If you're not sure where Zephaniah is, look in the table of contents. Don't be too proud to do that. Or uh, if you can find the book of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, find Matthew and just start flipping backwards, all right? You'll eventually land in the small book of Zephaniah. We're picking up where we left off. Last week in verse 4, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 15 of Zephaniah chapter 2. When considering the purpose of God's justice and judgment, I want you to see three things here. One, I want you to see that God punishes the wicked. We've seen that already. We certainly see that in in Zephaniah chapter 2. God punishes the wicked. The wicked. Number two, I want you to see that God vindicates his people. And number three, I want you to see that God redeems sinners. So when it comes to God's 
justice we see he punishes, he vindicates, and he redeems. And of course, for his redemption, we know that a price has to be paid. His wrath has to be satisfied. So it's definitely under the uh, topic of God's justice here. So consider those three points when considering God's justice that he punishes, vindicates, and redeems. And again, as you consider these three points, think personally to yourself how God's justice applies to you. Now, before we look at, at each of these, I want you to first consider once again the universal scope of God's judgment. We've looked at this already. God's rule and reign is universal. Last week we looked at, at Zephaniah 1.1 through 2.3 and we discussed how God's coming judgment relates to his own people Israel. But in the text we're going to look at today, we're going to see Zephaniah's focus widen to include the surrounding nations as well. In verses 4 through 15, he mentions the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Cushites, and the Assyrians. Here's what you need to know about these nations. One, they covered north, south, east, and west. They covered north, Assyria, south, Cush, east, Moab, and Ammon, and west, Philistia. Some were close to God's people in proximity. Nearby nations included Philistia, Moab, and, and Ammon. And there were other nations mentioned here that were a bit further away. Two distant nations were Cush, which some considered to be Egypt. Others, Ethiopia, still south of God's people. And then there was Assyria, which was a ways away as well. There were certain nations that were a small collection of states, smaller and weaker, and others were large, great, and powerful. What I believe Zephaniah is showing us here, what God is showing us through his prophet Zephaniah and the list of these nations is, it doesn't matter the location, how great or small, how weak or powerful, rich or poor, whatever the nation and wherever the nation, all are going to be subject to God's judgment. All will answer to him. God is over all nations. And because he is righteous and holy, he will judge the nations by his standard of righteousness. Whether they acknowledge him or not, it matters not. Now, no, this, this, is, a, this is a radical teaching in our day, right? But this was a radical teaching in this day as well. Because at this time, there were a belief among the majority of the nations, they were, they were pagan and, and polytheistic. And so they believed that, that there were different gods for different nations, over different nations. And these gods were, were localized. So they wouldn't have had any problem hearing Zephaniah speak to Judah about Yahweh's message to them and his message of judgment. That would have made sense to them because he was the God of the Jewish people. But what would have not gone over well for the nations in this day, for Zephaniah to then turn to the other nations and speak judgment against them as well from the God of the Jews. That would have not gone over well. That would have not have been well received. And it's not well received in our day, is it? There are many today with a pluralistic belief that says that there are many religious roads 
that lead to God. And as long as you're sincere about what you believe, you can even be a sincere atheist and you're fine, as long as you're sincere about it. Many are fine with, with teachings like that, but they're very intolerant of Christianity that teaches the universal lordship of God, the exclusivity of Christ, that the one true and living God is the God of the Bible and that His Son, Jesus, is the only way to salvation. But believers, again, whether the world likes it or not, it matters not. That's what God's Word teaches. According to Scripture, Genesis 1-1, it was God who created the world and everything in it. Therefore, because He created everyone and everything, He is over everyone and everything. And He says that He will one day judge everyone. It is His divine right. When I was in seminary for the first time, I got a job as an accounting clerk at a cardiology clinic. And I went to church with the office manager. She took a chance on me, having only met me a few days earlier. And uh, when I got to the office, I was one of the, the, the younger ones in the office. But everyone in that office had been hired by the same office manager. And it was one of the first jobs where we had regular performance reviews. And there were many in the office that didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that the office manager was judging them on their performance. Sometimes you would hear things like, who does she think she is? She doesn't know how to do my job. She doesn't know what I do. I don't need her telling me what I need to do and, and how to do it. My thinking is, she's the manager, right? We would not be here were it not for her, and she has every right based upon that, based upon her position to judge us that was true of my office manager how much more so is that true of the God of all creation God has every right to judge all authorities whether earthly or spiritual all beings great or small because he is the creator of everything he is the creator of heaven and earth Again, whether we acknowledge Him or not, whether we live our lives in this reality or not, it matters not. He is the reason we're here. He is the reason we continue to live here. And we're subject to Him. This truth is why we do missions, believers. Brent just got back from Nigeria. Look forward to having him share with us about that trip. Thank you for praying for him. This is why we do missions, right? It's because we as believers, we believe that the God of the Bible is, is God of all, the creator of the universe. We believe in the universal lordship of God. Christianity is not a Western religion. It's not an Eastern religion. History tells us it didn't start with us. Scripture tells us it didn't start with the group of Jews in the Middle East in the first century. It started with God who created everyone and everything. That's why we do missions. To spread the word of God's universal rule and reign. His holiness, man's sinfulness, and God's coming judgment and the rescue that he has provided for us from our sins and from his wrath. 
through His Son, Jesus Christ. God's universal lordship is while we're here this morning studying the words of a prophet named Zephaniah who wrote this book to a particular people in a particular place far removed from us 2,600 years ago. God's word through his prophet Zephaniah to his people then is the same word to us today that we need to heed and apply. The God over Zephaniah, the God over the Jewish people and the, the surrounding nations is God over us today. And the God who brought down judgment upon them is the God who will bring down judgment upon us. Notice several things. Zephaniah shows us here about God's judgment. Number one, we learn that God will punish the wicked for the wrong they have done. Look at verses 4 through 7. Zephaniah 2. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Eshkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites, the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. Notice Zephaniah, he's widening his scope of God's judgment here from Judah just west to the Philistines. The Philistines were longtime enemies of the Jews, right? Zephaniah lets them know here that the time would come when these populous cities would be emptied. Their land would become desolate. Their coastal cities that made this nation wealthy due to their shipping enterprise would be destroyed by their enemies and left in ruins. Left desolate. A place for shepherds to feed their flocks. Look at verses 8 through 11. I've heard the taunts of Moab. And the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the, the lands of the nations." God is going to show these nations who God is. Amen? The Ammonites and the Moabites were east of Judah. These nations had a scandalous beginning. After barely escaping the wrath God brought down on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his daughters fled to a cave in the mountains near Zoar. And Lot... And his daughters, they, they fled. Remember, his wife did not make it out alive. Long story short, fearing they would be childless, Lot's daughters conjure up a plan. Let's get our father drunk and let's lay with him and, and have children by him. And they did. The oldest had a son named Moab. 
And the younger had a son named Ammon. And from these two boys come two wicked nations, two groups spawned from incest. And they were great enemies of God's people. And we, we learn here that they, they mock God's people. They look down upon them. They believe themselves to be above them. Because of their great pride, we're told, they, they taunted and, and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. And God makes it known here that by setting yourself against Him, setting yourself against His people is the same as setting yourself against God Himself. He told Abraham this when he made him that great promise in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I'm going I'm to make a nation out of you. I'm going to bless you and bless this nation. And this nation is going to be a blessing to the nations. Then he says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that he was going to bless those who blessed them and curse those who cursed them. The Ammonites and the Moabites cursed God's people. They were great enemies of God's people. And because they were, God sets himself against them. Verse 9, he says, Therefore as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. See what he's doing there? A land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. While Lot and his daughters escape God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah by the skin of their teeth, these nations that were spawned from Lot and his daughters ultimately did not escape. Do you see that? God says they're going to be laid to waste. They're going to be destroyed just like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to be completely wiped out. He says the the remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. The Lord is going to showcase his supremacy, his dominion, his rule over all by bringing these nations to ruin. And Zephaniah says, there will be a day when all nations, sound familiar? All peoples shall acknowledge his supremacy, his divine right to rule, his universal kingship. Sounds like what Paul says in Philippians 2, right? When the King of Kings, King Jesus, returns, he says, every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The nations of the earth will one day bow before the true King, the King of Kings, King Jesus. Enemies or not, it matters not. His enemies will bow before him as they await judgment and torment from him. And his people will one day bow before him as they await glory. Either way, all will bow. Look at verse 12. You also, O Cushite, shall be slain by the sword. Now there is some debate, like I said earlier, as to where Cush was located. It is south of Judah. Some believe it's as far south as Ethiopia. Others believe this nation's a bit closer in in Egypt. Either way, both 
Both nations were great enemies of Israel. The Egyptians were longtime enemies of the Jewish people. You could say it goes back to Genesis when they, when they enslaved Joseph before they re- released him and he rose to a position of prominence. But most certainly we see that in the book of Exodus, right? We learn that the Ethiopians fought against God's people in the south in 2 Chronicles chapter 12 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 14 against Rehoboam and later against Asa. And because they were great enemies of God's people and they lived by the sword, God says they're going to die by the sword. They're going to be slain by the Lord, by the sword. Verse 13. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. It's going to be a desolate wasteland. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Remember this summer we were in Jonah for a Sunday during missions month and I gave you some some background on the wicked Assyrians and of Nineveh, this great capital city. The nation at one time was a force to be reckoned with. They became a mighty world power in the ancient world and, and there was not a city more impressive than Nineveh. Remember, God sends Jonah in there to preach against the Ninevites, preach a message of repentance, and we learn about the greatest revival we have in the Old Testament. Repentance from the top down. The king of the capital of Assyria steps up off his throne and puts on sackcloth and sits in ashes, right? Great revival. But we learn as we continue on with the story that they returned to their wicked ways and they were actually the ones responsible for bringing down the northern kingdom in 722. Here's Zephaniah. He tells of their end. He states that in similar fashion, God is going to make this great city, this mighty nation, a wasteland. He says, God will make Nineveh a desolation, a barren wasteland, a lair for wild beasts. Notice Zephaniah again. He comments on their pride here. We see in Zephaniah 2 that pride is at the root of these nations' wickedness. It is a great and terrible sin that results in all kinds of evil. The Assyrians believed that they had risen to power by their own strength and that they were untouchable. Notice what the wicked Ninevites were saying. We're told in verse 15, they were saying, I am and there is no one else. Does that sound familiar? That's sort of attitude, mentality? Yeah, it should because pride is, is, is our problem as well. It's a great and grievous evil. You know what pride is? It's taking who you are, what you've accomplished, where you are in this life, and it's taking the credit on yourself and taking it away from God. It's what pride is. 
We see it everywhere. Nowhere is it more clearly seen, though, in college and professional sports, right? See it all the time. This big basketball player will grab a basketball that looks like a grapefruit in his hand. He'll slam it down and pound his chest as if he did that. I'm like, you're seven feet tall and you're 300 pounds. You better slam that grapefruit. How many of y'all have said that? If I was that size, yeah, I'd do that as well. Shaq refers to himself as Superman, but the question I have for him is, who made you 7-1-3-25? Last I checked, Psalm 139 says, it was God who formed your inward parts and knit you together in your mother's womb. Folks, God gave you your intellect, your abilities, and your opportunities, and all glory goes to Him for all that you have, for who you are, for all that you have accomplished in this life. The prideful, those who think they've gotten where they have gotten and achieved what they have on their own and think no one can touch them and worship themselves for it will not stand in the day of judgment. Not my words, God's words. The Ninevites learned that the hard way. They were saying, look at us. Look at how far we've come. Look at all we've done. There is no one beside us. No one can touch us. Zephaniah says, God is over you and he will certainly touch you. He will stretch out his hand against you and destroy you. So we see here that that God's justice is punitive. It's retaliatory. It's retributive. He does not offer a rehabilitation plan for these wicked nations. He brings down his hand of judgment upon them. He brings these nations to ruin. He wipes them off the face of the earth. So we learn here that God will punish the wicked... For the wrong that they have done, notice also God will vindicate His people for the sake of His holy name. This prophetic book of Zephaniah is true to form. While these types of books are are filled with God's pronouncements of judgment on the wicked, sprinkled within these verses are also blessings for God's people. Look at verse 6 again. Remember, he's speaking to the Philistines here, but look at what he says. He says, and you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Eshkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. So the the Philistines, they were merchants. We talked about that earlier. That's how they made their wealth. Israel was an agrarian society. That's how they made their wealth. Notice Zephaniah says that the seacoast, where the Philistines made their wealth as merchants, shall become a pasture for shepherds, folds for flocks, the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. While God will punish His people for their wickedness, see chapter 1 if you need more on that. He will also bless them by preserving a remnant from them. 
While they will suffer defeat and exile, they will ultimately be restored and blessed. Notice there's a bit of poetic justice taking place here that the Lord deals out against the Philistines. Their entire history is a history at odds with God's people. They were constantly trying to enslave God's people and strip Israel of their land. And God shows here that that they will not ultimately be successful in that pursuit In fact, they're going to lose their land, he says. God's going to strip it from them. And he's going to give it to his people, Israel. The descendants of Lot suffer a similar fate. While they taunt and mock Israel, they will be the ones who will be brought to shame and ruin. They will suffer a similar fate to Sodom and Gomorrah, as we talked about earlier. While they looked down on the Israelites, God looked down on them and brought them down. And it would be the Israelites who would inherit their land as well. Look at verses 9 and 10. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. In each of these situations, in the destruction of these these wicked nations, we are witnessing here the vindication of God's people. We are seeing the vindication of the promises God made to them, and we will also see a return of His people's faith in Him and in these promises. In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, again, he's going to make a great nation out of him. Through this nation, nations will be blessed. God attaches his name to that promise. And he says, those who bless you, I'm going to bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And we see God, throughout his people's history, remain faithful to this promise to them, even when, especially when, they're not faithful to him. There were a lot of times... When God's people questioned God's faithfulness, questioned God's leading, questioned His abilities, questioned His power, questioned His promises, and even went their own way, the wicked way of other nations. And while they were punished by God as a result, God remained faithful to them even when they did not remain faithful to Him. He tied Himself to His people, to these promises, and He ultimately... Delivered on those things and restored it. God is faithful even when we're not. Praise the Lord for that truth, right? We see that in the way he deals with his own people. He made good on his promises by blessing his people and making them in turn a blessing to the nations. Now, did he do it because of who they were? Say no. He did it because of who he is. He did it for his glory. He did it for the sake of his holy name. In Ezekiel 36, we get insight into the motivation behind God's actions. Look at it with me up on the screen. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 29. Put on your reading glasses. I know it's small. Or look at it in your book. Therefore say to the house of Israel, 
Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned. Notice how many times he says this now. Among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Notice here, God's motivation. He says, I'm doing this for the sake of my holy name. For, for the sake of my holy name, I'm doing this. We also learn here in Ezekiel that God is going to do more for his people than just free them from the bonds of slavery. He's going to do more than rescue them from captivity. He's going to do more than just restore them to their promised community. He is going to free his chosen people from the chains of sin and deliver them from all their uncleannesses. He is going to change their heart of stone to a heart of flesh. He is going to give them a new heart and put a new spirit within them and is going to restore them to himself. How's he going to do this? Read the rest of the story through his son, Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our last point. As we have studied about God's judgment, Zephaniah 2, we have learned that God will punish the wicked for the wrong they have done. He will vindicate His people for the sake of His holy name. Third and finally, God will redeem sinners through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. How would the nation of Israel be a blessing to the nations? How's God going to work that out? As we continue to read, we learn that God makes good on His promises. He preserves a remnant of people so that through that remnant, He could bring forth His Son, God the Son, King Jesus. Through the line of Judah, through the household of David, He brings Him into the world, sends Him here. Christ willingly comes, takes on flesh, tabernacles among us to accomplish this great work work of redemption for us. Through the life he lived, death he died, through his resurrection, Christ made a way for sinners to be forgiven, for the wicked to be made clean, for the unclean to be washed white, and for the wayward to be restored to a right relationship with the living God. And he did it through enduring God's wrath for us. He was made sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Our sin was transferred to him so that his righteousness might be transferred to us, the great exchange where we see God's wrath satisfied and we also see the wonderful mercy and grace of God shown us. It's all there at Calvary in that wonderful work. While verse 11 of Zephaniah 2 is a word of condemnation against the wicked nations in those days, the days of the prophet Zephaniah, indicating that while they remain set against God in sin, they will one day be brought to their knees before him in reverence of him as they await judgment from him. Zephaniah also prophesies here the fact that many in the surrounding nations will be blessed because of the work that God will accomplish in redemption. Look at it again, verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. While many will reject God to the very end, we also know as we continue to read the story, believers, that sinners from every tribe and tongue will also believe on God's Son and will bow before Him in worship of Him as they wait for Him to draw near to them to dwell with Him for all eternity. That promise is there. All nations are going to bow, right? Believers, we learn as we continue to read God's word, that our end, the end of our story is truly glorious. Look at it with me. John peels back the curtain a little bit to show us the ending, what our end will be as believers in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. He says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and honor and, and, and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's our end, believers. The question I want to leave for the rest of you today is this. Where will you stand on that day? Who will you be standing with? What will that day be like for you? Will you be an enemy of God's on that day or will you be a child of His? Decide this day where you will stand on that day. This decision cannot wait. God makes it clear in His Word that today is the day of salvation. If you are here and Christ is not Lord of your life, I urge you right here, right now, today, to forsake your sin and bow the knee to King Jesus so that that day for you will not be a day of dread, but it will be a day of joy. It will not be a day of, of condemnation, but will be a day of salvation. Let's pray together.